the unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, I will be talking with my friend Ron Johnson. I first met Ron in about 2008 or 2009 at the annual UFO conference in Laughlin, Nevada. I have also been to his home a few times, and we've had long conversations. Now, I have always wanted to do an audio interview with Ron, but I realized it would take a lot more than just one hour to to actually truly tell his story. And because of that need, uh, just his story is so rich and so complex and so much is going on, I will be doing a series of interviews, basically several one-hour-long interviews. Uh, Right now, I am not sure how many it will take. I am certain there will be at least three, and there will probably be more. His story has a lot of elements beyond some of the things that might seem common within these experiences. Things like um, events in his childhood and dreamlike memories of being on board a craft. Now, Ron has also been doing a lot of Bigfoot research and paranormal investigations at haunted sites. And uh, he's had a lot of owl experiences, too, and we'll cover those also. Ron has lived most of his life in Utah, and I lived in that area for over 25 years. And although I didn't grow up there, I feel I was part of that culture. And so I feel like I have a little bit of an insight into Ron and the area that he calls home. Ron is a very soft-spoken man, and there is a shy side to him. And when we first met, I would not have expected him to come forward and be so open about his experiences. In the years since we met, about 12 now, I have seen a big change in him, and I can sense a need in him to get these stories out. This will be the first in a series of interviews. Our conversation was recorded on Tuesday, September 2nd, 2020. Please enjoy. Ron, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Uh, Thank you, Mike. I uh, really appreciate you even asking me. (laughs) Oh, no, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and and one of the things that, that, oh, I guess stood in the way was that I realized the only way to do this would be to do a long format interview, like maybe three or four hours, three or four hour long episodes, all separate, but um, but to just allow you to really tell your story because I think it would do a disservice to say, hey, let's talk for an hour and we'll get your story out and, and it'll be interesting. I think it would just, there's so much that's that would be left untold. Yes, there's, there's so much to my story that... Uh... An hour just isn't enough. Three hours isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> so we can we can stretch this out as long as we need to, and then it'll just be separated into episodes on the site here. Just a quick question. How old are you now? I'm 66. Okay, 66. Okay, so you're a bit older than me. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, and then the, so the stories in your youth would go back into the, I guess, the early 60s. Correct. Yeah, back in uh, Southern California. 
where I grew okay, up. Okay, I, well, I thought you, that's right, because some of the, I, you mm -hmm. sent me some, some of your writing, you're working on this, to put this into a book, and I, and I thought you had grown up in Wyoming. No, no, uh, it was Hermosa Beach, California. Okay. Uh, that's where I was born. Uh, my parents and my sister and brother are all from Utah. I'm the only oddball in the family that wasn't born in the state of Utah. But you lived in Wyoming for a while, correct? Uh, correct, I did. Uh, okay. I was in Grand Teton National Park at uh, Coulter Bay Village. And uh, I had an encounter going to work one day. We'll, we'll we, get into that. We'll get into that, yeah. Just so let's start off, What's I mean, mm -hmm. as far as what would you consider your first, I guess, defining experience as a young, I guess, as a child? My first one would be... Back in 1960, when I was six years old, uh, going to elementary school, and uh, I had a friend that lived down the street. He was my best friend at the time, and we were always doing stuff together. And he would tell me about this person that he would see all the time. He called him uh, Light Bulb Head. And I thought that was just, you know, kind of funny, you know, light bulb head. But uh, as years go on, I can see where he got that uh, that name from. But anyways, uh, I would go to school. We lived about oh, three quarters of a mile from the school. And about halfway to the school on walking the street, this street cut through this, uh, it was kind of like a green belt area. It was a large area that was, uh, had eucalyptus trees and ivy in it. And as kids, we would always call this place the eucalyptus tree forest. And going to and from school, I'd have to walk through this place every day unless I went way out around and then come back up to where our house was. And so one day I was uh, walk, walking home from school and I would notice somebody standing up, there was a big water tank up on the upper end of this, and there was always somebody standing there watching me when I would walk through. And this is after my best friend told me about this, whatever it was, this guy or... But anyways, I was, I'd walk home, and I would notice him standing up there by this water tank and one day after school, I don't know the exact date it was, but uh, I was walking home and I noticed that this person was closer to me, closer to the road to where I was when I was walking through this eucalyptus tree forest. And I, uh, he scared the heck out of me because I looked at him and then that's where I where my friend called him the uh, light bulb head because <laughs> he had this great big bald head 
had large cranium. He was just a weird-looking person, I thought, and he scared me. So I took off running, and as soon as I took off running, I felt these arms grab me, and he stopped me, and he told me, he says, "Come, you're coming with me. And back in that time, back in the 1960s in Southern California, where we lived, it was uh, in a town that was called Hermosa Beach, and it was about halfway between Los Angeles and Long Beach on the coast. And there was lots of open areas, lots of uh, vacant lots, uh, big open areas that haven't been developed yet. And he took me to this one big field, and it had this, you know, these big tall weeds, and he took me out into these weeds, and then right out in the middle of these things, there was a cement slab laying there, and he had me lie down on my face, cross my arms, have me, you know, lay my head into my crossed arms, and he says, stop. He told me to stop crying because at that time it was, it, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to deal with this. And so he, all he told me was stop crying. He says, I'm not going to hurt you. And then he had me lay, lie down and, uh, put my head into my folded arms and not to move. <laughs> and so I laid there and laid there. I don't know how long. It seemed like a long time. It was getting close to evening. It was starting to get dark. And then uh, all of a sudden I just kind of turned my head to look to see if he was still there. And he was gone. I don't remember him doing anything to me. But uh, he he wasn't there, and I got up, and I ran home just as fast as I could, and I was just, my heart was pounding, and <laughs> it was just a real scary experience for a six-year-old to go through. Now, now here, let me just, so you said you were on your way home from school, right? Right. And then this event happened where, I mean, this is really frightening and then it it led up almost to sunset yeah it there was uh quite a bit of time there involved but it didn't seem like it took that long for some reason and then i'm just thinking if like someone from the outside you know like would i mean i'm going to ask this question and i and i hope it comes out okay but i mean this sounds like some sort of you know, this could be interpreted as some sort of like sexual predator, like taking advantage of a of a child. And uh, yeah, I I thought of that. That's why I would never uh, would really talk about it much to anybody. Uh, I just didn't know how to. Uh, uh, oh, I've always thought that this might have been. I don't know if this had anything to do with. Uh, uh, 
ETs or anything or about what was going to happen to me in the future or, or, or what it was. But uh, what's odd is right after that, when I was in school, uh, we were out on the playground, and my best friend was there. And I remember I've got this, I don't know if I've showed it to you before, but in my on my left ear, kind of between the earlobe and the skull, I have a uh, an implant there. It's a it's a foreign body. It's metal, and it's a little it's like a little round ball. And this, I was, I've had this ever since I was a uh, young child. And I asked my would ask my mom about it, and my dad, and uh, they told me that I've had it ever since I was born. This little bump in your ear. Yeah, this little bump in my ear, and uh, my parents didn't have a clue what it was and uh, but I would always feel this thing and even now I still rub my hand across it and you can feel it <laughs> I don't know if I uh, told you about this down at the uh, conferences or not but, uh, and I can't remember either but I but but keep going yeah but uh, anyways uh, at the play on the playground I was uh, telling my friend about it and uh, kind of showing him where it was, and uh, cutting, picking. I had something inside my ear, and I, I was trying to fish it out with my little finger, and I couldn't quite grab it. And uh, I was showing it, showing it to my friend, and he would look in there. He said he didn't see anything, but uh, I could. I could feel it in my ear. It was like, uh, I don't know, I don't know what it was. I don't know how to describe it. It just felt like a uh, like a rock or something. Inside your ear, actually, within, like, down the ear canal. Yeah, yeah, down the ear canal. And so I finally got this thing, started to wiggle it, and I pulled it out. And it looked like a little, real small, short, uh, coil spring that was like wrapped in paper. It was really odd looking. And I took it over to the teacher on the playground and I showed it to her and she slapped it out of my hand <laughs> and says, quit picking at your ear you're going to go deaf. <laughs> and, and it scared me. It scared the heck out of me. And so I just, you know, okay, <laughs> kind of walked away. And uh, then this, a little a moment later, there was a man came up to me on the playground. And he was a tall, skinny man, wore a black suit, had a black tie, little narrow black tie. And he came up to me and he called me by my name, my first and last name, he said, Ron Johnson. He says, don't pick your ear. You leave it alone, or you're going to go deaf. You're going to pull your drum out. And that's all he said. And then he walked away, and there was a, a ramp that led from the playground down to the road below. 
And I went over, and he walked down this ramp. I watched him. He walked all the way down to the road, stopped, turned, looked at me, then walked off. And, and that scared the heck out of me. And I went and told the teacher about it, and he told me there's nobody here. There's no nobody on the play playground besides you kids and, and us teachers, and that's it. No, no, he would have, like this, you're describing a very tall man in a black suit. He would have stood out in a group of kids. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, he's, to me, he stuck out like a sore thumb. And then, and then just walking away, I mean, I'm thinking if, like, of a, like of a school in California, there would have been a parking lot, and anyone who would have done this would have, I would have just assumed they would have gotten in a car and driven away as opposed to walking away. Yeah, no, he walked away when he got down at the bottom of the ramp. He stopped and turned around and looked at me, and I was watching him. And it was, oh, I don't know, probably maybe 150 feet or so <laughs> from where I was down to the road on this ramp. And he just stared at me for, you know, not very long, maybe five, six seconds. And then he walked off, wow. walked out of sight. I've never heard this story. This is fascinating. Yeah, and uh, it's just odd. <laughs> it is, yes. Hey, I need to interrupt this conversation, but we need to take our very first break. For free listeners, you will be hearing a few commercials. And for paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with my friend Ron Johnson, and I am going to bring us right back into the conversation just at the point where we left off only moments ago. Okay, here we go. Coming right back in. And then I, you know, another experience I had, I don't know if this has anything to do with it. Uh, me and my sister, we used to... Uh, my parents would let us sleep out in the front yard on a blanket. That's something you don't do down in L.A. now, nowadays. <laughs> and uh, we were sitting there, and this was, I don't know what time it was, it was late at night, and these two bright lights come up right overhead, and they made a sharp 90-degree turn. They went down towards Redondo Beach, and then they made another turn and went out over the ocean towards Catalina Island. And right after that, after I watched it, watched it go out over the ocean, there was a citywide blackout. It lasted for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. But I always wanted to research that and uh, try and find an exact date that would correlate to that, you know, what happened. But uh, that that was it. I, you know, I don't remember anything happening or anything like that. And then how close were you to the ocean where you were living? Oh, we were probably a mile at, at the most. And then just like near Catalina Island, just opposite Catalina Island off the coast? Yes, yeah. It, yeah, Catalina Island, I think it's 22 miles off the coast. Okay. Yeah, there's a remarkable story. Um, we don't need to go into it, but I just, the Catalina Island had a sighting 
well, let's just say more than a sighting, had a set of odd events that were um, that Yvonne Smith wrote a book about about ooh, seven or eight years ago, and it was like a mass abduction at a hotel there on Catalina Island, and that was the same day that Bill Clinton was on the island. Um, that was oh, during wow. his presidency in the in the nineties. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. That'd be interesting to read. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating book. But that just when you said Catalina Island, I, it just that had a. Um, that was the first thing I thought of was that event that yeah. that would have been in the 1990s. So that would have been, you know, decades after yours. Yeah. I've had other experiences with Catalina Island that, uh, you know, out of body OBEs, but, uh, we'll get into that later. Good. Good. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and that, and that's, that's about, uh, that's about it. I had one more experience, uh, but I, this was at a younger age. I was probably like about maybe three, three years old. And I can remember my mom, well, the house we lived in was a one-bedroom house. It was an old Spanish-styled house in Hermosa Beach. And we were all crammed together in this one-bedroom <laughs> And over in the corner was a set of bunk beds, but my parents would never let me sleep on the, they would never let me up on the top bunk. It was always the bottom bunk. And I remember one night I lay in there and I kept felt, feeling these hands grabbing my feet <laughs> as I was laying in bed. And it scared the heck out of me. I'd get up crying. I'd go walking into the living room where everybody else was up watching TV. And then my dad and mom would get mad at me. And my dad would say, stay, get, stay in bed. You know, don't get up. You know, go to sleep. And it just, and I'd lay there and I could feel these hands <laughs> grab my feet. And it was like they wanted to pull me down to the foot of the bed. And it just scared the heck out of me. Wow. And I, I still have uh, dreams about it. and But like I say, I don't know. I've never really told these much before in my interviews or anything. I always started at my encounter in uh, 1968 in uh, Riverside. But uh, some of my friends told me that I should mention these. I should start mentioning them. So, and, the, and this is, these are, these are interesting. And I, here, I'll just, I had my own experience. This is something I don't think I've ever talked about or written about. I think I may have put it on my blog. Um, do you remember that in the TV show, Star Trek, at the end mm -hmm. of every episode, there was, a, they just do like these flashes. They were just stills from previous episodes. And one of them was this big alien head and it had this kind of Dracula uh, collar and this big light bulb shaped head. And these kind of, I guess the, the eyes were oversized, but they weren't black. They were more like cat eyes. They were like yellowy cat eyes yeah. and this really small little mouth. So it kind of mimicked the gray alien in a lot of ways. And I right. remember as a little kid being terrified of that image, of that one image. It would just flash on. Um, it lasted just a few seconds as the credits were rolling. And then I remember having a dream where 
this feels like a dream. So I'm, I don't think I'm relating anything that truly happened, but that this this being was in the living room of the house I grew up in. And it didn't mm -hmm. quite match the house I grew up in. So it felt a little more dreamlike in that aspect. It's amazing. I can remember this from like over 50 years ago now. And, and so I was hiding in the bedroom with my parents and my parents were genuinely worried. And they kind of said something to the effect of like, I don't think he'll come in here. But every time we would peek out into the living room, it would be like a, another step closer. So you would peek in the living room and you would, he would see it was a little closer and you get scared and then it would be closer. But like that fear of that image just stands out in my, in my, in my mind as a very subtle clue. Like I, 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 right. I, I can, I, I, I can sense that there might be a source to that fear. Right. Yeah. It, it's like that, uh, uh, eucalyptus, forest area that I told you I'd walk to and from through mm -hmm. you know going to school and oh man I mean even today I still have dreams of that I wouldn't call them recurring dreams um, in the sense that they're not exactly the same every time I have them there's always a little difference in them but I, I guess you could call them recurring because it's basically the same thing. But uh, this place totally scares the hell out of me. And even now, when I go down on vacation to California, I will drive up through there and stop and get out and look, and my spine just starts tingling. There's something about that area that I don't like. <laughs> and, and are those trees in that wooded area still there? They're still there. Mm -hmm. wow, okay. Yeah. What it is is it's an area where they have a water tank, mm -hmm. and then on the other side of the road, oh, down about maybe 50 feet, there's a small little building shack there, and I'm assuming it's a pump house. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I think that's what it is. And this place just, there's the hell of me. I have these darn nightmares of me standing in the middle of this eucalyptus forest. And I'm by myself. It's late at night. There's no one around. And all of a sudden, I just, I want to go home. And I just take off running as fast as I can. And it's like there's some something chasing me, something following me. <laughs> and as soon as I get home and go in the front door, I wake up. And I've had other ones like that, dream exactly like that, except there would be a big bright light in the sky kind of following me, mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like tailing me. Mm -hmm. um, but every time I would get home, and as soon as I'd go through the front door, I'd wake up. And what's odd is there's never anybody home I was always, it's always me by myself. Nobody on the street, nobody. And it just feels like you're totally alone. <laughs> wow, that's, yeah, I've, so I've had dreams similar to that, and not lately, but I remember as a boy I would have dreams like that, yeah. So, mm. 
and then are there is there so the Riverside California event um which which was in the late 60s is that is there anything uh that you can remember before then that you haven't mm, shared or? no um uh, no that uh like there was a bit like an about an 8 year gap of time i've been trying to make a timeline of all this stuff and all my experiences and i just keep putting it off and I want to I want to do a timeline and get it done but uh, this experience was in 1968 I was in high school this is Mike and I need to interrupt our conversation for our second and final break for free listeners you will be hearing a few commercials and for paying members we will be right back we are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with my good friend, Ron Johnson. And before the break, we interrupted the conversation, and we are going to slide right back into it right now. Here goes. But uh, this experience was in 1968. I was in high school, and summer vacation was, you know, here. It was late August. And my uncle, he had a horse ranch in uh, just outside of uh, Riverside in Mockingbird Canyon. And he called me up one day and asked me if it would be okay, if it was okay with my parents, if, if I would come out and help him put a water line in, a new water line to the house. And I told him, yeah, sure. So after asking my parents, they let me, you know, they told me it was okay. And my uncle came in and picked me up, took me out to the uh, to the ranch. And we got there, and the ranch sits up about, oh, maybe half a mile up on a kind of a ridge from where the road, from where the road is. Uh, and this ridge that the house was on went down towards the road, and that's where we were putting this water line in. He already had the uh, trench dug, and all we had to do was just put the PVC pipe in and glue it all together and then bury it. And so it was on the third night that I was there. It was, uh, we we would usually knock off work about, oh, 2.30, 3 o'clock, because in August, in that part of California, it's hot. <laughs> it's in the triple digits. Mm-hmm. And we would go in the house. The house had air conditioning in it. And uh, we'd go in and, you know, he'd make dinner. And my other uncle was there also. And we would uh, usually stay up, watch TV, talk about, you know, what we did. And then everybody would go to bed and the way this house was had a huge living room had eight and a half foot tall ceiling and the bedroom I slept in was on the opposite side of the house where the other bedrooms were it had three bedrooms and I was right next to the kitchen and so I 
told my uncles that uh, I'm going to just go to bed. I'm just overly exhausted. And I did. I went in, went to bed, and it seemed like I immediately went to sleep. And something woke me up. I don't know what it was, but I just woke up out of a dead sleep, and I mean wide awake. <laughs> and there was a clock on the wall, and I can remember the clock, and it said 12 midnight. <laughs> and I'm laying there, and all of a sudden I just start shaking. Uh, and it's not from being cold, it's from fear. And I'm just shaking, and I know there's somebody in that darn bedroom with me. And so I'm just laying there, and then in my peripheral vision, I can see a green-colored glow. And I'm sitting there, and I was just too afraid to look behind me. But after a while, I decided I just kind of rolled my head back and kind of to the side. And there was this tall being there. I don't know what it was. And like I, I, I say being because I don't know. I didn't know anything about UFOs or aliens or anything like that back in that time of my life. I was totally ignorant of them and what they were. But anyways, I was looking at this thing. And then I turned my head back forward, and I closed my eyes, and I just started praying to God, go away, go away, make this go away. And I'm just shaking, shivering. And so then I opened my eyes later, a little while later, and I looked behind me, and he's gone. And this thing was, uh, he had to have been eight and a half foot tall or so, because his head was right up against the ceiling. And I, like I said earlier, this ha this house had eight and a half foot ceilings in it, and it was oh, about eight and a half foot tall. Like I said, had a large cranium head. It was uh, had these oh god had this chin that came down almost to a point. Um, you ever read that? book, uh, Blue Blood, True Blood, from uh, uh, Stuart Swordlow? No. Okay, there's a picture mm -hmm. in there, and it, I mean, that, that it almost looked identical to what was in that book. But uh, anyways, this thing had uh, big, black, deep-set eyes, uh, kind of a beige-colored co skin. Um, and it was enveloped in a green glow. And But you could tell, even though it was in this green glow, you could still tell and see that it was brown, kind of a light brown beige color. And it had that real small, petite nose, not much of a nose at all. It was almost basically just two round holes just above the mouth, and uh, it had no ears, and it had this long, scrawny-looking body, <laughs> it, and it 
it, it looked like a uh, skin wrap skeleton. Mm-hmm. It, there was like an anorexic person would look like, is what it reminded me of. And it had these long arms, and it had these pointed bony shoulders. You could see the rib cage sticking through the skin. And it had these long arms, three fingers and a thumb. And these fingers looked like they had appendages on the ends of them, uh, like like bumps. I don't know what they were, but... Um, and I, and it was just real horrible looking, <laughs> but it never, never said anything, never talked to me, just stood there watching me, looking down at me, laying in the bed. And another thing that was uh, happening was uh, there, you could hear a clicking noise that uh, lasted for about an hour, even after it it had gone, that clicking noise was still there. And you could hear it. It would make these two click sounds about every 30 seconds or so. And so I just, I laid there just shaking. And the my blankets were on the floor at the foot of the bed. And I was didn't have any blankets to cover up and hide from. And so... I'm laying there just shaking, you know, oh, my God, you know. And then I uh, finally get up enough nerve, and I get out of bed, grab the blanket, and then I go into the living room and lay on the couch and then cover up. And I slept the rest of the night there, except for I actually didn't sleep. I just laid there wide awake. And the next morning, my uncle got up, came in, and wanted to know what the heck I was, why I was sleeping on the couch in the living room. And I told him about what happened, and he just kind of laughed and told me, says, oh, you just you just had a nightmare. And this uncle of mine is, uh, he doesn't believe in anything like this. And, boy, he just, I mean, he was just laughing at me, ridiculing <laughs> me about it, and said, oh, you just had a nightmare and woke up from it. And I told him, I said, no, I said, I was awake. I was laying there watching this. And he says, oh, he said, it was just your uncle, your other uncle that was there. He was just checking on you to see if he was all right. That's all it was. He said, it's, there's, you know, there's no such a thing as anything, you know, that looks like that, a person that would look like that. And it, this just went on and on and on. He kept telling me what it was I saw. And and at that time, I didn't really question him that much about it, other than I told him that, you know, it wasn't what I saw. <laughs> and uh, this went on for years. And my other uncle, when he got up, I told him about it. And... He told me after we got outside, away from my other uncle, that he says, I believe you 100%. And I always thought he had experiences, but I never really got to talk to him about it. 
And uh, this went on for years, for years. What, oh, so this At, went on like repeated sightings, or them, or the? Oh no, um, no, my uncle ridiculed okay, me about gotcha. that. That that was the only time I saw uh, that particular being. Uh, but the next day, I started seeing him in dreams. He would come to me in dreams. This being, but uh, but back to my uncle. Uh, I'll finish telling about my uncle. And for years and years after that, even after we moved to Utah, he would just, every time he would see me, he would just start laughing about that. Remember the time you thought you saw something? <laughs> and uh, he says, yeah, he said it's just a, a bad dream you had and all that stuff. And finally, uh, God, when was that? I think it was in the 1990s. I was in Utah. He was out there in Utah with us. And he he started telling me, you know, telling me what it was I saw. And finally, I had enough of this crap. And I told him. I got into a real bad argument with him over this. And uh, I told him, I said, you wasn't there. I was there. I'm the one that saw it, not you. I said, I know what I saw, and it was not. A figment of my imagination, or or a bad dream, and and he just kind of shut up after that. Never bothered me anymore about it. Wow, that's like thirty years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he just kept needling me about it all that time. But anyways, uh, right after I saw this. Uh, the next day, I told my uncle, I said, I don't want to stay out here anymore. And uh, I called my parents, and they came out and picked me up. And I said, you finished the water line yourself. You know, I don't want to stay out here anymore. And uh, whenever we would go out and visit after that, I would sleep in the car. Wow. I wouldn't uh, sleep in the house. That place scared the hell out of me. And so, anyways, right after after that, I started having these dreams, and it was all they'd always be the same. I would be in this uh, it was like a laboratory type setting, and it had counters along the walls, and there was all kinds of apparatus and stuff laying around in there. And this tall being would be standing over in the corner watching me. And I'm standing there. And in the center of this room is a, uh, what looks like a stainless steel table. And I remember this table. It looked like it had cabinets under it. And there would there was something laying, another being of some sort laying on top of this table. And this other being that was the tall one I was telling you about that was standing in the corner, he would tell me, and in my mind, I could hear him telling me to get up on the top of this table, on top of this being, and have intercourse with it. Oh, so this is, and you would have been about 15 at the time in this dream? I was about 14 years old when this happened. 
And uh, so I'd get up there, and it was like he was controlling me. And uh, I'd, oh, I still have a hard time talking about this. <laughs> but uh, and I would, it would be over with in like a second, you know. Mm-hmm. And this thing was, uh, I could, it didn't feel real. It looked like a, it looked like a person, but it didn't. It was about my height, about six foot tall, maybe a little bit longer. And it had a bald head, had big, large black eyes, but the chin and the mouth was more human. It was more human size. Uh, it had arms. The arms was more human size. Uh, the, it wasn't anorexic looking. Uh, and it was a, also, it was about the same color. It was like a beige colored, uh, light brown. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh God. And, and every time I would get done, I'd get down off the table, and then I'd, it was like everything would turn a fuzzy white, and uh, everything was in like a bright white light in this laboratory type setting. And anyways, I, it was like I would pass out is what it would feel like. And then I would come to in bed and I'd have to get up, go to the bathroom, I'd have this green substance in my groin area. Oh my God. And this went on, this happened, this went on and on and on for years. And uh, every time that, uh, I, that I would have this dream, Every time that I would see this being laying on the table, it had hair. It would start growing hair. And each time I would have this experience, the hair would be a little bit longer. And then the last time I had this happen, it had a full head of hair. <laughs> I, I know it sounds funny, but this is the way, this is the way it went. And... It just seemed so, I I know it was a dream, but it seemed so real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, green substance that I had, would have when I would wake up, that was real. And I, you know, I wish now I would have collected some of it and saved it. But like I say, at that time, I didn't know anything about UFOs or aliens or anything like that. And I don't think you've ever told me this story. This is really troubling and really disturbing. Yeah. um, I mean, to be that young. And then after it was, uh, I think now what it was, when I think about it now, it was a hybridization program. And they were using... (laughs) my sperm uh, to create another being or another race. I don't know. This is just all speculation. But, uh, yeah, it was really weird. And 
Oh, like I say, I have a hard time talking about it. Oh, I, I understand exactly why. <laughs> this, that was this is a very. I'm glad you shared that. And and um, this is Mike, and I'm I'm going to talk a little bit during the editing process. I snipped a little bit out here of the conversation. Ron and I talked about some details of his case. I'm choosing not to share those here. They were pretty personal. And I also shared some things that I have heard in my research. And um, and the subject matter was pretty delicate, and I'm choosing not to share this during the interview. I hope you understand. We'll go back to Ron talking, and he'll be talking about the interior of the craft uh, during that that very disturbing event that he was talking about earlier. Thank you for understanding. Wow, that that's a lot like mine. The room was uh, real bright and uh, kind of hazy, mm-hmm. and uh, but yet I could still see things. You know, I knew what they were, and this being that. I was forced to have uh, intercourse with didn't feel real. This this is what's weird. It didn't feel real at all. It felt more like a uh, uh, like a doll or a mannequin. It was really strange because every time I'd get, it would never move. It would never talk. Never say anything. It would just lay there. And uh, and uh, it it was very very frightening and. Uh, what was weird when this would happen and I'd wake up and it just, I felt, I don't know, I had a, it was a real strong feeling of uh, shame, of uh, uh, that I was doing something wrong. And uh, it's really strange. Oh, no, that's not strange and, at all. And I've heard this kind of story many times from other people, too. And when I got older, much older, when I got, I think it was right around 35 years of age, it, it ended and never, never, never happened again. <laughs> oh, that many years. That's like 20 years. That many years. Yeah. And, uh, so I figured, uh, there must be a pretty big family I got out there <laughs> when I think about it now. Yeah. But at the time I, I hated it. I would pray to God for it to stop. I didn't like it. I I was afraid of it, uh, but nothing would happen. It was like I wasn't. My prayers weren't being answered, and I had to put up with this, whether I liked it or not. I've heard I've heard this many times from other people too. Yeah, something very similar. Yeah, and it's. I mean, this is. I mean, this is trauma. Oh, it is. It is. I'd like to do a regression sometime on that, but uh, I don't know. I sometimes wonder if I should just leave it alone. <laughs> I, you know, that's that. Um, yeah, it might be better to to pursue something that isn't so fraught with with so much, so such yeah. heavy emotion. Yeah. I've I've done regressions with Marley Spinlove and another uh, woman. And uh, they were, they're still pretty, pretty entailed. <laughs> and I kind of wish I would have just left it alone. <laughs> I know. I've talked to some people who've had gone through hypnosis and, and then afterwards wish they hadn't. 
you know, I've done hypnosis yeah. a little bit and, um, and I want it's to, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm cautious to trust hypnosis completely. Right. At the same time, I mean, just the level of, it's very hard to not know, like to spend your life not knowing you like, I know something yeah. has happened in my life, but I don't truly know the source of it. And that is, that's, that's very yeah. difficult to just let that, just to ignore that, that intensity. Yeah. Everything, I don't know about other people, but with me, everything associated with these encounters I've had are very vague. They never let you know what actually is happening. And uh, they just leave it up to, it's like they use you and then that's it. Goodbye, thank you, until next time. You know, and 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 it just it makes me mad. Understandably, yeah. You know that they do that. And I done a uh, an interview with, I I think I told you about this with Elaine Douglas. Yes, my good friend Elaine and Douglas. I, yeah, yeah. And I told her, oh, in vivid in extreme detail, she wanted to know exactly what happened. This story we just you just you and I just talked right. about. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, uh, boy, she, she got mad and she said, they raped you, you know. And I never really looked at it that way before. Um, and, and boy, she, she was mad. She was, oh, she said she hates these darn aliens, you know, for doing things like this. And, and I was quite close with Elaine. Um, Elaine Douglas died, I think, in 2013. I, I'm not exactly right. sure, I could, but I think that's right. And she lived in Moab, Utah. I used to go to Moab. I was traveling yeah. down through the West a lot, and I would visit her. And so I sat with her many times, and we talked on the phone a lot. And I did a wonderful interview back in around, I think it was early 2013, just a few months before she died. And it's a great right. interview, and that's on my um, my uh, Hidden Experience site. But, um, wow, she she had a dark view of this whole thing. I think, it's, I think there's a dark side to this thing. And if I talked about anything that seemed a little fluffy or love and light, man, she was having none of it. She just, she had a dark, dark view of it. And also I could see her basically saying like, you give me every detail. She was tough. She yeah. was a tough researcher. And um, I mean, I shared a lot with her and she shared a lot of her stories that she, of the people mm -hmm. she had worked with. So yes, she was, um, she was, she was on fire with uh, yeah. she was researching. I, stuff. I miss her. <laughs> I'm only about, uh, from where I live here in East Carbon, I'm only about maybe 75 miles from Moab. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so yes, I miss her too. And I miss her, her straightforward. I mean, she was just straight. She did oh, not man. mince words. Like if I said something she didn't like, boy, she would, she would tell me right yeah. away. Like, nope, I got that wrong. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I, I can't vouch for what's right or wrong, but she, she was not shy about, about her opinions. Yeah. It's like when I, I, I was really embarrassed talking to her about, it, the details about how how it was going down, mm -hmm. and then she'd get uh, she wouldn't get mad, but she would was real stern. Oh yeah, this isn't what I want to hear. I want this. Tell me more. You know, <laughs> we're going to spend the next half hour on this one thing. I want to know every detail, every color, every feeling, everything. I tell you, she was. Thorough. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm very I'm, thorough. And I've heard similar stories enough that I don't like. I I'm too polite to just. I don't feel the need to have every detail. Like I I right. yeah. I can sense what <laughs> what your I can sense what your emotions would have been. And uh, yeah. Hey, let's jump to something else just for a little bit because this is something now that you're in your youth, we're following this chapter of your life mm -hmm. when you're young, and. I want to ask about Scooby-Doo. I know you had a, a fascination with Scooby-Doo, and I just this is a one little aspect that I think is so intriguing. I I don't know. I I'm a cartoon fanatic. I I do drawings. I do uh, animation drawings. Uh, I went to school for it, and uh, I don't know what it is, but of all the characters out there, I don't know why I just have a an infatuation with scooby-doo <laughs> well i mean scooby-doo was the first you know that the, the the mystery van was full of paranormal right. investigators right and that's what i do now is uh paranormal investigations ghost hunts but not you don't have a psychedelic van do you no, no, no. <laughs> I got a, a Honda Accord. <laughs> okay, not quite, not quite the... Yeah, not look. the same, but yeah. close enough. <laughs> but uh, mainly, I, I don't really do the ghost hunting per se anymore. It's mainly uh, EVPs is what I specialize in, and that's about all I do anymore. Now, I've talked it's to a... It's so time-consuming. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a fellow I interviewed, a... Uh, about a year ago here for this podcast named Brett Oldham and Brett has had contact experiences and he is also doing a lot of ghost hunting. And he says that within the crew of folks that he's doing the ghost hunting with, he is by far getting the most EVPs. Like he's yeah. the one that's recording them. And what's your sense? How, what are you doing as far as your, like when you're working with a crew or a team? Um, well, we used to have a team. I used to belong to another group. And Oh, by the way, I know Brett. He's a good friend of mine. Oh, good. Brett's a great guy, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was the uh, lead investigator for a group out of Tuella, Utah, called uh, uh, Untitled Paranormal Investigators. And we used to go all over the state, different buildings and houses and businesses and uh, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I feel more compelled to do the uh, EVPs now. And boy, I tell you, I get some good ones. <laughs> wow! I get some fantastic ones. Um, one of the best places I ever collected EVPs was up Spring Canyon, uh, just outside of Helper, Utah. And there's seven ghost towns in the canyon. And it, they're uh, mining camps. <laughs> and uh, we get, there's this one place up there, uh, in, it's called Peerless. And it's some of the best EVPs I've ever retrieved come out of that area. Wow. And for folks that don't know what an EVP is, an electronic voice phenomena? Is that what it's called? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, you take a, a voice recorder, ask questions, and wait for an answer. <laughs> and you don't, do you hear the answer live, or do you hear it? Sometimes you can hear, like, uh, words, 
Mm-hmm. There's not, it's not that often, and it's just like a, a whisper in your ear. But what's neat is they come out on the same sound. The same word comes out on the EVP, on the voice recorder. And I've been doing this for so many years, I'm now starting to hear them on the, uh, when I watch TV, I'll hear them in whisper voices in the uh, speakers Mm -hmm. on the phone. Uh, It's just weird. And then, you know, you hear them occasionally in the house, but not that often. Are they threatening or are they, I mean, I'm just trying to figure what kind of messages they're coming across. (laughs) I've got messages saying that they're going to kill me, I'm going to die, um, and this one is real eerie. Uh, it was up at Peerless. There's a section of a house that still has a wall standing. I call it the wall, the Peerless Wall. Best place in the world for EVPs that I've found so far. And uh, my cousin the one that had died recently, that was my partner. We were up there doing EVPs at this wall. And we were getting some good ones. And what it was, this voice would come on and ask, help, help, help me, please, help me, God, help me, please. And it was just, uh, he was pleading for for help. <laughs> is what he was doing. And so after a while, we would stop, and then we went, we would go back and then try to continue it. And uh, same thing, help, help, help me, please, God, help me. And this other voice came on and took over, and it was a rougher, more grumbly voice. And it says, I'll kill you leave here immediately i'll kill you you know wow (laughs) and then that voice would go away then that other voice would come back help me help me i need help and i've got evps up up the gazoo of this voice saying this and so we left again and came back and I told my cousin, I said, I want to try and see if I can get this guy to move on, this spirit. I said, this other spirit is holding him here. And so we started the EVPs again, and I was talking. Uh, had the voice recorder there running, and I started to talk to this spirit. I says, uh, <clears throat> you know, you don't have to listen to other spirits and have them control you they cannot physically keep you here if you want to move on you can move on it's strictly up to you and all you have to do is go into a light that has a christ type feeling to it and right after i said that this orb comes up out of the ground between me and my cousin And then it just, I mean, in the blink of an eye, it just shoots straight up. And we have been going up there ever since. (laughs) And we have never, ever 
heard that voice again asking for help. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm literally, I literally just, I'm going to be cautious saying this, I just teared up. I just have, I'm literally just, that, that's just my eyes yeah. watered when you said that. <laughs> but I, I believe these, uh, these UFO side, UFOs, aliens, entities, I think they're more interdimensional than maybe ETs. But uh, ghosts, out-of-body experiences, uh, near-death experience, it's all related. It all has to do with the afterlife. And I have heard this many times, yes, yes, that it's somehow yeah, connected I, with... I can't prove it, that everything is related. And I've talked to Grant Cameron about this a lot. And uh, he, he says the same thing. And so my research is with owls, right? So I've gotten all sort mm -hmm. of pulled down this track with owls, and owls represent for me two things. There's big, there's other things they kind of fall into, but the biggest thing seems to be death and UFOs. Mm -hmm. People see right. owls around the time of death. There's all kinds of folklore associated with death and owls. In modern times, presently, right now, there are all mm -hmm. kinds of repeating owl sightings in conjunction with UFOs or with right. with with a contact experience. And this is not the, I mean, this goes well beyond the screen memory image where someone might see a four foot tall owl in a road. These are real owls showing up at the, at the time of, of UFO contact. So for me, it's showing up, it's showing up that the owl is symbolic of these two, I would call these highly charged experiences, your death, transformational experience. And I would say that UFO mm -hmm. contact would be a transformational experience. People are transformed in some way or another just by seeing a UFO, right? So you see a UFO, uh, afterwards you will have a very different opinion on on the mysteries of the universe. Let me put it that way. Yes, exactly. Uh, with me, it's I've had lots of experiences with owls. But I've also had experiences uh, right after encounters, abductions I've had with deer. Deer show up. I've had deer show up inside my house. I've had deer show up inside uh, the dorm that I lived when I was living in Wyoming, working for at Grand Teton National Park. Uh, it's just weird. I've had owls come down and... Uh, perch on my porch for like a week and a half. And you've sent me pictures of these owls, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've had them perch on my uh, top of my uh, Jeep Cherokee on on the uh, luggage rack. I think I told you about this. Yeah, yeah. Day. Well, let's fill this in because this is... And just stare into the window into my living room. It's like they're watching me. It's like they're observers. I don't know. Just seems like they're observing. Oh, I hope this is going okay. Oh, it's going great. It's going great. I'm super happy how this is going. I, I think we're about the time when I should end this. We're into it about an hour. And what I look forward to is coming back and continuing this and just following the story and letting you and letting you get it out, letting you get this story out. So let's just take a break now. We can come back. At a, at a future date, and then keep going from this point. How's that sound? That sounds great. Let's do it. I just really need to thank you for your for your honesty and your openness, and, and having known you, I think we met in 2000, 
2009. It might have been 2008. Yeah. So that's um, you know 12 years I've known you, and um, and I have to say you have been extremely consistent with the way you present these stories. I've heard you tell some of these stories before, and I'm riveted hearing them again a second time. That's awesome. Yeah, I I, uh, I had a hard time telling them back then, but uh, I'm getting better at it. <laughs> and I have gotten better at it too. I think it's just to get... And now here's a question. On the level of one to 10, what is your sense of feeling a need? Like what is your sense of the need to tell these stories? Uh, in the last couple years, uh, it ten. Okay. I've been when I first when these first started happening, I I wasn't going to tell anybody. I didn't want nobody to know. And uh, and as it goes on, it just seems like it just creeps up the one to ten scale. But now it it feels like a ten. It's like I got to. It's like I get these dreams, uh, and these dreams, I'm trying to put all these paragraphs together, and they're paragraphs of my stories, and i got to put them in order. And it's real, real, real strong that i got to tell these stories. And I've been having dreams galore about that. <laughs> wow, how interesting. So I, you've never told me that. Yeah. Yeah, you have never told me that exactly, but boy, that is my sense. There's stuff that I know I haven't told you about. I'm gonna, I'll knock your socks off with some of these experiences. It's like my first out-of-body experience. Wait until I tell you about that one. <laughs> I am looking forward to that. But for now, let's, mm -hmm. let's call it an end to this episode, and we'll pick it up right where we left off on the next one. Okay. Sounds great. Great. Hey, thank you so much. This has been awesome. All righty. Sounds great. Great. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. I said it earlier that there will be a series of episodes to cover Ron's experiences, and I have no idea how many that will be. I'm guessing around three, there will probably be more, but I just feel it's really important to cover his experiences in the thoughtful way that they deserve. A couple of things about this episode. Ron spoke about doing EVPs. Those are electronic voice phenomena recordings, and he was doing these during his paranormal investigations. Now, in a private conversation, he said that he was getting more voices than his teammates on the site you know, that, that his teammates would get hardly anything, and he was getting tons of stuff. And and he hinted this during the interview, but I wanted to say it more clearly here because he told it to me much more clearly in a personal conversation. Now, I have heard this from a few people with contact experiences, that they are somehow able to get more and clearer EVPs on ghost hunts. And this this is curious to me, but honestly, it does not surprise me. Now, I also want to point out that Ron has a blog where he posts about his Bigfoot research, and you can find this blog at utahbigfootfiles at blogspot.com. I'll repeat that again. All one word, utahbigfootfiles at blogspot.com. And he is also on Facebook, where he posts a lot of scenic photos of Utah, 
like desert scenes and ghost towns and a lot of beautiful sunsets. I am looking forward to sharing more of my conversations with Ron in the upcoming episodes. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.